think my mic's on out there. Yep. Hey, everybody. Thanks for showing up today. Hey, we are living right now in Northern California, Napa to be specific, where it may have been rainy and crappy yesterday, but still, it's only like 50 degrees out, right? In Kansas, it's not going to make it above zero today. So be grateful, people. You have no idea, unless you've grown up somewhere else, how wonderful this is. So anyway, we jump in, continue on this series, Simplicity, Spirituality, and Service, where I will dovetail uh, Bruce Epperly's teachings each week on his chapter, uh, which we're going to focus a lot on the teachings and wisdom of uh, St. Francis of Assisi, St. Clair, and Bonaventure, uh, three mystics from the 13th century, somewhere in there, dovetailing that with the liturgical uh, scriptures that show up in the lectionary that many churches across the world, probably most churches around the world, Catholic, Protestant alike, uh, use each week, and then figure out how those things work together with our lives today. And today is a really interesting one. So we're going to talk first about a story that shows up in the lectionary, which is an organized way of reading the Bible throughout the year, so that, or over three years, so that churches cover most of it uh, over time. Why is it doing that? Did that in the early service too? Anyway, um, the story we're going to have talks about uh, a guy named Samuel. Here you have Samuel, who's the youngster there, talking to Eli. Stop it. All right. <laughs> uh, talking to Eli uh, up on the top screen. It's going to do it again. I just know it. Uh, and the, the deal was is that there was a woman named Hannah. All right, I give up. There was a woman named Hannah who was struggling to have kids, and she cut this deal with God that if she was uh, blessed with a child, she would, uh, she would offer that child up in service to the temple of God, uh, give the child to the church, essentially. And lo and behold, she got pregnant, and she made good on the deal. So as soon as she had her son Eli, she took him to the temple, and, or, yeah, her name... The, the kid's name was Samuel, took kid Samuel to Eli and said, this is the deal I made, please raise this child in the temple for the service of God. Uh, she ended up having other kids, uh, so that all worked out fine. Uh, but the time in history where uh, Samuel was entrusted to Eli was an interesting time in ancient Judaism's history. Uh, they weren't quite a nation yet in terms of how other people thought of themselves as nations. They were the people of God. And instead of a king, they had God as their leader. They had their tribes working together. Uh, but the temple was kind of in charge of everything, but not in charge charge like a king would be, but more like an influence where everybody recognized that their heartbeat really flowed from the heartbeat of God. And so there was this interesting communal dynamic that happened in the organization of people in time. They would abandon that uh, because they wanted a king, and they got it, and they got all the bad that came along with that. But this is before all that. And Samuel uh, was being raised by Eli, who was a pretty good priest of the temple. He was the head honcho. Unfortunately, his sons, who grew into adulthood and were also priests in that temple, uh, were not so good. Somehow, they didn't catch the vision of God and instead caught a very human vision of greed and self-centeredness. They became known for skimming offerings, uh, enriching themselves in different ways, and impropriety with women in the church. Thank God we're beyond pastors skimming money and taking advantage of women in the church. Yikes, things don't change. So that's the context that you have. You have major corruption uh, happening in the temple. Uh, Eli is uh, in charge, but apparently he's not doing much about it. And then we have this young man, Samuel, who's still in boyhood when this thing happens. The boy Samuel was serving God under Eli's direction. This was at a time when the revelation of God was rarely heard or seen. One night, Eli was sound asleep. His eyesight was very bad. He could hardly see. It was well before dawn. The sanctuary lamp was still burning. Samuel was still in bed in the temple of God where the chest of God rested. Uh, you may know this chest of God uh, by another name, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this was before Indiana Jones found it, and it was taken to the Smithsonian, where it rests until this very day. Then God called out, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, yes, I'm here. Then he ran to Eli, saying, I heard you call. Here I am. Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And so he did. God called again, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli. I heard you call. Here I am. And again, Eli said, son, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. 
This all happened before Samuel knew God for himself. It was before the revelation of God had been given, oops, before the revelation of God had been given to him personally. God called again, Samuel, the third time. Yet again, Samuel got up and went to Eli. Yes, I heard you calling me. Here I am. That's when it dawned on Eli that God was calling the boy. So Eli directed Samuel, go back and lie down. If the voice calls again, say, speak, God. I'm your servant, ready to listen. Samuel returned to his bed. Then God came and stood before him exactly as before, calling out, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, speak. I'm your servant, ready to listen. Let's just say that phrase that Samuel uttered together, shall we? Speak, I'm your servant, ready to listen. Commit that to memory, will you? <laughs> say it every morning uh, before you enter into your day. Say it every night before you go to bed. Uh, who knows what could happen if we were so attentive. God said to Samuel, listen carefully. I'm getting ready to do something in Israel that is going to shake everyone up and get their attention. The time has come for me to bring down on Eli's family everything I warned him of. Every last word of it, I'm letting him know that, that the time's up. I'm bringing judgment on his family for good. He knew what was going on, that his sons were desecrating God's name and God's place, and he did nothing to stop them. This is my sentence on the family of Eli. The evil of Eli's family can never be wiped out by sacrifice or offering. That's the word of the Lord. Samuel stayed in bed until morning, then rose early and went about his duties, opening the doors of the sanctuary, but dreaded having to tell the vision to Eli. But then Eli summoned Samuel. Samuel, my son. Samuel came running. Yes, what can I do for you? Well, what did he say? Tell it to me, all of it. Don't suppress or soften one word as God is your judge. I want it all, word for word, as he said it to you. So Samuel told him word for word. He held back nothing. Eli said, he is God. Let him do whatever he thinks best. Wow. Samuel grew up. God was with him, and Samuel's prophetic word record was flawless. Everyone in Israel, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, recognized that Samuel was the real thing, a true prophet of God. God continued to show up at Shiloh, revealed through his word to Samuel at Shiloh. Well, bad things did happen. Uh, Israel went to war with the Philistines, uh, which was their uh, arch enemy, and the battle did not go well, even though they had the Ark of the Covenant there, which was usually their, you know, their secret weapon. Crazy things happened when the Ark of the Covenant showed up on the battlefield. They would miraculously win somehow, but not that time. Instead, they were completely overcome. The Ark of the Covenant was taken away into the Philistine hands, and the sons of Eli, who were looking after that Ark of the Covenant, were killed. That was the end of Eli's family and legacy and his work. Samuel's call, in contrast to what had happened under Eli, was to reform, was to get things back to where they were, uh, to talk about the things of God and what God was hoping for the people of God, that things would go good for the people of God because that's generally how it goes. <laughs> if God is all about shalom and we want to be a part of shalom in our personal lives, in our families, our community, our nation, our world, when we choose to do those things, shalom manifests and shalom makes things better. But when it makes things better, it's not always welcome where shalom has not been present. And I just want to say that real clearly. So you think about things that we know are unshalomy in the world, uh, where there's, uh, you know, disparity, uh, where there's war in Ukraine or Gaza and Israel, uh, where there's genocide happening in Africa or economic disturbance or political turmoil or income disparity in our own United States or prejudice or discrimination, all those things. Think about all those things. And we want shalom to happen. And so what will happen then uh, when shalom starts to roll in fast or slow to those spaces? Well, the people who have not experienced shalom, it's going to feel like fresh wind. <laughs> it's going to be life. 
they're going to finally feel like a human being, like an equal person with equal rights to all these things. They're going to be treated with dignity and respect. But what's going to happen to the people and the systems that they support that have been constricting that shalom from happening? They're not going to be happy because they are no longer going to be better than, more powerful than the ones that they've been a part of suppressing. So in this sense, when we hear Jesus talk about, you know, the coming of the kingdom of God and weeping and gnashing of teeth, let's, let's get away from the idea of Thanos coming and wiping people out and world wars and all that, and let's just think clearly about this, that when shalom of God comes, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth because the ones who have been holding on for their own sake or protecting systems that are destroying other people, those people are going to feel it. And they should, because they've been the ones who have been part of the problem. And by the way, when I say they, I also mean we, <laughs> because we're all complicit in one way or another, on one level or another. So the judgment of God, in this sense, is shalom riding in and doing what it needs to do to clean the slate, to freshen things up, to make things better for everybody and everything. Well, we get some inspiration on that uh, from St. Francis, who's the guy in the middle here, and Claire, who's the woman on the left, who was kind of his disciple. She lived in a convent uh, all of her life. Uh, uh, St. Francis, as you might remember, was born into uh, luxury and wealth and uh, prosperity and all things good, and then he had an encounter with a leper who he despised. He despised leper, leprosy colonies, and uh, his life was changed when he heeded the word of God to go embrace this leper. And he then spent his life helping out leper communities and helping out everybody who needed it, uh, choosing to live in poverty uh, in order to do that. The guy on the right is Bonaventure, and he, was, uh, he lived kind of at the same time as Claire, but, but uh, after uh, Francis passed. And he picked up the teachings and the vision and carried those things forward. Well, Bruce Epperly talks about their vision that they, they were called to because they were born into a time where there was great corruption in the church. At that time, it was just the Catholic Church. There wasn't any alternative. And at that time, there was significant corruption because they were, a, they were the dominant empire religion. Even though things had broken up by that time, they were still in force. And they, they were kind of their own thing. And so here we have uh, this, uh, this statement from Bruce Epperly about... What happened to those three? This same divine call centers all creation, moment by moment and life by life. Creatures sing in unison with God, fulfilling God's vision for their lives on land, sea, and air. God's creative power in the world is invitational, not co coercive. We can say no to God or embody God's call in our own unique way. Neither our negativity or our digressions nullify God's loving care. God continues to invite us toward fulfillment through service and compassion, regardless of our response. So the first thing here in terms of the vision that Bruce Epperly is saying, which I think is a biblical vision, which is a God vision, which is true beyond all religions, is that creation itself sings. <laughs> That's a wonderful way to think. Creation itself, the created order, is responsive to the one who is generating creation, the spirit of God, this, this thisness, this greater other. Things happen, and it's marvelous. It's incredible that food grows from seeds and, and provides food for us to eat. It's incredible that birds figure out how to migrate and navigate and do whatever they do. Uh, all of creation, except for maybe humanity, is pretty much always on board with whatever God is up to. But, but we're, we're interesting creatures. We're not always on board. We get pulled in other ways motivated by other voices and calls. And those things sometimes get us in trouble. But the good news of God that Bruce Epperly shares here is that even when we blow it, it doesn't change God's response. <laughs> God's response is a constant. I'm all about shalom, and I'm inviting shalom into your life and into everybody's life that you touch. You, Crosswalk, the invitation's before you. There is shalom if you want it. Now, I want to tell you, there is a little uh, fine print that if you truly want this shalom to come into your life, there's a strong chance that those parts of your life that aren't very shalomy, that's my word, 
<laughs> those parts of your life that aren't very shalomy, when you allow shalom to come in, it's going to sting a little bit. But it's okay. Because it means that the fullness of shalom is going to have its way in your life. That may mean that you have to change your vision on things. It may mean that you change your lifestyle on things. It may change your attitude on things. But it's okay because it's the shalom that's coming in, which is deep wellness and well-being. It's, it's the best for us. And it's always there, even when we blow it. And I tell you from personal experience, there have been times in my life where uh, I unwittingly didn't know that I was not very shalomy, and then found out later, and you know what I discovered? That, that God was all about shalom. I was like, hey, glad you're waking up. Uh, come join me in this vision of shalom. And even times when I knew I was struggling and was making poor choices that were not shalom-oriented and then figured it out, what I discovered was the voice of God was not there to chastise or judge, but to simply say, I'm glad you're waking up. Shalom awaits you at deeper levels, and shalom awaits you in your future should you say yes to that. That's the invitation of the Spirit of God, period. And there was a guy in our history, in American history, who caught that vision. You may have heard of him. His name is Martin Luther King Jr., and this weekend is dedicated to uh, commemorating him and remembering him. By the way, it gives me an opportunity uh, to show the working title of what I'm showing you here today is our Wall of Witnesses. So uh, all of these photos that we have up here are different people uh, who have been significant in civil rights or or otherwise. And so uh, you can roam around. I did forget to bring my description sheet, which I meant to bring and stick on the, the pillar over there. And it has a little QR code, which will take you to a page, and you can find hyperlinks to all these people and learn more about them. Some of these are, are very clear. Some of these are on the left side of this front post, so you can't even see them, uh, like Abraham Lincoln and Susan B. Anthony and Eli Wiesel and Nelson Mandela. You might not even see those. And some of these might be very unfamiliar to you, which is fine, because I want you to learn. There's some organization to this, too. Um, I explained this in the sheet that will eventually appear somewhere. Um, kind of the vision of this was, one, to remind us of who's been in our history, who's been a part of this thing right now, talking about civil, civil rights in general, uh, and to organize them loosely in a particular way. And at first I was thinking foundation, and we have a few open slots there because uh, we didn't have pictures of those people printed off yet, so that's, they'll change probably by next week. Um, and so I was going to kind of build, like, the people on the topper windows are standing on the shoulders of those below. But then two things got in the way of that. One is that could be constrictive, and two, that means that I would have to regularly change the very top pictures, and that's a real pain in the butt. And I didn't want to do that, so I thought, is there another vision <laughs> that will allow this to make sense? And so I remembered in uh, Hebrews, uh, there is this, this image of... Uh, the great cloud of witnesses. And so that's kind of what I'm, what I'm thinking here, is we have a great cloud of witnesses here, past and present, deep past and more recent past, and then we have these new voices uh, that are doing incredible, wonderful things. And so uh, the second one up from the bottom, just to kind of give you, these are, these are modern-day active people. So you have Greta Thunberg, and uh, her work has to do with climate awareness and realizing that uh, we really have done things as human beings uh, to hurt the planet that we call home. And if we don't get our act together and do our part, maybe there are other big things if that's the news you're listening to, but we know. <laughs> the overwhelming majority of scientists know that there are things that we do to exacerbate the problem, things that we can do to change that if we want. Why wouldn't we want clean water, better weather, better air for our future generations? Of course we do. And unfortunately, sometimes it takes a Greta uh, to make noise to do that. And then you got Malala. Oh, I'm going to butcher her last name. Yusuf Sai. Is that close? Anybody? I think that's pretty close. Uh, she is uh, a very brave woman uh, who stood up uh, to, uh, well, her life. I mean, she almost lost her life because she said no. Was it to the Taliban? Is that, am I got the figure right? Yeah. And she was on a bus, so I put her right under uh, Rosa Parks, who was on a bus and made some noise. And uh, Malala did the same thing, and now she's an activist for women's rights and a part of the world that women are still treated very poorly. And then we have Dolores Huerta, who has 
uh, been a part of uh, civil, civic rights, largely for labor uh, unions and things. She's sort of like the, the next generation of Cesar Chavez, who's right above her. And then you have uh, Dan on the, on the right here, who has done great work uh, for, oh, what's his last name? That's, uh, ah, it's, 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 it's deep in the files. Uh, it's, ah, it's not Dan Fogelberg. I know it's not Dan Fogelberg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Dan has been a chief uh, guy for uh, LGBTQ uh, rights, which is why I parked him uh, right below Harvey Milk, who, who was the previous generation. So we have this great cloud of witnesses, civil rights and so forth, when we get to Black History Month in, in February. Uh, our hope is to change that out so that it's all focused on that. Uh, Women's History Month is in March, so we hope to change it out for that. Uh, AAPI uh, month, uh, I think, is in May, so we want to change it out for that. Uh, Pride month is in June, so we want to change it out for that. So uh, help me figure these people out. Uh, who, who deserves to be on the wall of witnesses? Because that's kind of the idea with this. Lauren Haas has figured out a way to make frames for them, to make them uh, cool. So anyway, we've been wondering for years, what could we do uh, with this wall? Well, this is what we're doing now. <laughs> it could be a terrible idea that we're done with, but that's what we're doing now. Yeah, thanks. I'm glad you like it. So Martin Luther King Jr. was an American Baptist pastor. Crosswalk is an American Baptist church. We were founded in 1860 by missionaries who lived on the East Coast, and they sailed all the way around the tip of South America to come up and start our church. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Because that was the fastest way here and the safest way here. And so we have this deep, deep heritage with this extremely broad group called American Baptist Churches, which is made up, uh, it has got to be the most diverse denomination on the planet. It's, it's really, really diverse and extremely broad. So that means there are churches like us who are progressive and uh, definitely more open to lots of different voices and ways of thinking, more free-ish that way. And yet, in our denomination, we have some ultra-conservative churches as well. And somehow, we figured out a way to collectively do good things uh, in the world. Well, uh, you might wonder how in the world, uh, why in the world, Martin Luther King uh, would be an American Baptist pastor, given that there are hardly any American Baptist churches south of the Mason-Dixon line. Well, there's a good reason for that. History. So, brief history. There were Baptists in Europe uh, who read the Bible. Uh, this is before they knew they were Baptists. And they're just good Lutheran folk uh, who are wanting to... Nothing wrong with Lutherans, all right, but this is, we're going back a few centuries. And uh, so they're reading the, the Bible in Switzerland as a small group, and they come across the baptism passages in the gospel. And they're like, hey, this is cool. John the Baptist was baptizing like grown-ups, not babies, but grown-ups, people who wanted to make a decision. And then the disciples of Jesus did the same thing. People, when they decided they wanted to follow Jesus as adults or at least of age, uh, they would get baptized as a way of a fresh start. So, hey, this would be cool. Let's, let's do this on next Saturday. Let's do it. And so they went down uh, to the river uh, and uh, baptized each other, and it was this wonderful thing. They had tacos afterwards. It was wonderful. <laughs> well, word got back to the Lutheran authorities, and when the Lutheran authorities found that out, they did not think that was wonderful. They thought it was a power play. These people were called Anabaptists, which means baptized again because they were all baptized as infants, which was the practice in the Lutheran church and Catholic church, etc. Well, the church was, uh, they did worse than write an op-ed <laughs> toward this group or, or send a threatening letter. They sent authorities from the church and they found them at that river baptizing in and they chose to teach them a lesson by drowning them in the very waters of baptism. Yeah, Christians against Christians because they poked the bear of power. So Baptists fled. Uh, they, they fled Europe and found a new home of religious freedom in these United States and did well and had the freedom to interpret the Bible as they wished. And Baptist now is the largest uh, Protestant denomination in our land. Well, then came along uh, this little issue called slavery. And the Baptists in the United States came together to make a decision. Our, is, the decision on the table was, is it moral and is it okay 
for missionaries to own slaves. One person to own another person. And a large group of the people said yes, and a large group of the people said no. Not surprisingly, uh, the people who said yes were the people from the South. And they became known as the Southern Baptists, which is the largest Baptist organization in the nation, the largest Protestant denomination in the nation. And guess what those in the North became known as? Not American Baptist, Northern Baptist. <laughs> Later on, they would change their name to American Baptist, which is who we are. So we are rooted in these people who said, no, it is not appropriate for one human being to own another human being. And we can be very proud of that. Well, so you have a guy here who's a fourth generation pastor in Atlanta, Georgia, where there are no American Baptists. So why in the world did he choose to be an American Baptist in the deep south in his time uh, where, you know, he could have just been a Southern Baptist? Well, would you want to be a Southern Baptist? Right? If, if you were a black pastor and you were seeing segregation happening and all kinds of unequal rights happening, endorsed by the general populace, including pastors of white churches, white Baptist churches, would you want to be a Southern Baptist pastor? No way. And so he became an American Baptist pastor. He went to college and university, was deeply informed. Uh, actually, I think it's in New York State. I could be off on that. Uh, but uh, same school uh, that influenced a guy named Walter Rauschenbusch, who was uh, critical in history in terms of um, changing laws for uh, labor uh, for women and children in particular in New York City, Hell's Kitchen. He was a key American Baptist voice in that. And that's the same, same area, same stew uh, that uh, fed Martin Luther King. So anyway, uh, he, he rose in his renown as a leader and ended up leading an organization that sought uh, justice and freedom and equality for black people in the South. This was a heavily segregated uh, time in history. Uh, uh, you, if you were black, you had the legal right to vote, but there was no way you were going to be able to pass the bar of, regi of registering to vote. There were, there were equal standards. If you were white, you went and signed a piece of paper. If you were black, you had a test that was impossible for you to pass, most likely and most of the time. So the bar was not the same, so they could not vote for their own representation, which means that the problems were gonna be perpetuated. So what Martin Luther King and his uh, followers did was they engaged in nonviolent direct action. We would call it nonviolent resistance today, but they, were, they used the term nonviolent direct action, where there would be a bus boycott. And so for a long period of time, uh, they uh, encouraged uh, people to not take the bus, which was their primary mode of transportation, to get to work. And instead, they would walk one or two or three miles to get to work. Why would they do that? Because sometimes the only time we listen is when it hits our, our pocketbook. And it did. It hurt the bus system. Other things that they would do in nonviolent ways is they would march in downtown streets. This is before shopping malls. So commerce would be brought to a halt. And they would do it at very targeted times. On one particular occasion, uh, they looked uh, on the calendar and discovered that the two biggest seasons for shopping uh, were the weeks coming up to Christmas and the weeks right before Easter. And so they chose to have one of their marches Easter week in downtown Birmingham because they knew that if they came en masse in downtown Birmingham, it would stop everything. And everybody would have to pay attention to them because they hadn't paid attention to them yet. They weren't breaking store windows, they weren't rioting, they were non-violent. But they got attention. Many people were arrested uh, because they were marching without a permit, so they were breaking the law, technically, uh, to make noise, to draw attention, to create tension. Uh, tension that was already there to shine a light on a tension that was already there that was being ignored and because they broke the law they were arrested Martin Luther King being one of them so he wrote a profound letter called letter from a Birmingham jail I read it back in college uh, and knew some of the quotes from it and I reread it again this week by the way on my email that I sent out and also on my blog that publishes uh, today at 12 I give you a hyperlink uh, to a collection of MLK writings. 
It's a, it's a free Kindle. It's like 260 pages, full of great stuff. And I highly recommend uh, that you add it to your digital library. You can buy a hard copy too. Uh, go ahead and kill trees. That's fine. Uh, but anyway, the, uh, get, the, get the digital copy uh, and, and check it out because it's really rich stuff. And my strong encouragement to you, um, you know, you got a while till important football happens uh, later today. So why not grab a cup of coffee or something this afternoon and read letter to a letter from a Birmingham jail. It's going to take you about an hour. And I hope it has the same impact on you that it did me. So I have some quotes from that, that six, long six-page, single-spaced letter. One of the famous quotes that you hear often attributed to uh, MLK comes from this letter, where he says, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an, ins an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow provincial outside agitator idea. Anyone who lives in the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere in this country. So what he's responding to here is people recognize that he was getting arrested in Birmingham even though he was from Atlanta. And they're wondering to themselves, he had critics who were saying, what are you doing here? You, you don't live here. You shouldn't be here. But he, as a leader of an organization that was looking after equality and equity in the Deep South, He's saying, I have every right to be here. And do you notice also what he's suggesting here? And you get the, the, the motive of what he's doing in the first place. He's trying to bring shalom. He's trying to bring equality into these places, real equality, where people are really treated the same under the law and in civil society. That's what he's after. It's a very shalomy thing. And he's getting in trouble for it, even arrested. He goes on, and here's his phrase, nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and establish such creative tension that a community that has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. Let me read that again, because this is why he did what he did and why that continues today. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create a crisis and establish such creative tension that a community that has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. Over the last few years, I have consistently preached that nonviolence demands that the means we use must be as pure as the ends we seek. The way we would say that in Crosswalk, you've heard me say, is that our goal is shalom, the end goal is shalom, and the means toward that end must be shalom. Towards shalom with shalom. It's got to be that way. And sometimes we get that right. He goes on and says this, uh, this tragic reality. History is the long and tragic story of the fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture. But as Reinhold Niebuhr, who was a theologian 100 years ago, has reminded us, groups are more immoral than individuals. Groups are more immoral than individuals. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Let me just... Highlight that last sentence one more time. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. One of the things that I forgot from my college reading of this is that uh, the first half, he's just kind of casting his vision of what he's been up to but the second half or more of his letter is a direct response to white southern pastors who were writing him, who were collectively putting out op-eds, saying and criticizing his action, saying that you shouldn't be doing this. Why? Uh, some of the things that they said is, you just, it's just going to take time. You just need to wait it out. Just keep preaching this stuff. It'll eventually work itself down into the soil and everything will change. It's just going to take time. 
And he counters that by saying, you know what? <laughs> That's false because of what he just said. And time has been taken advantage by those who continue and perpetuate the oppression itself. They know they have plenty of time, and they have done many things to make sure they'll have even more. There is no more time. And this, after 400 years of being treated less than. How much time will it take? Another critic, uh, in the form of some kind of a written criticism, uh, called him out for creating tension. You shouldn't be creating tension anywhere. And his response to that was, what about all the tension that has been created for us for so long? What about the tension that we have been living with as unequals in a land that proclaims we're all equal? Some others said, you shouldn't be so radical. And to that he said, I am disappointed. He said, first of all, he was, he was somewhat offended by the word radical. But then he leans into it and says, you know what? I'm disappointed that you are not more radical. Because the Jesus I follow was radical. The Jesus I follow was one who engaged in nonviolent direct action. Gandhi, who deeply inspired uh, MLK, practiced nonviolent direct action against the British Empire, and they saw change happen. Do you know where Gandhi learned his technique? Jesus. Do you know where MLK was in? was inspired Gandhi and Jesus he turned the table on his own contemporaries his own colleagues and he said with great disappointment I really thought when I started this this charge of bringing Shalom and bringing equality I thought that my fellow pastors all of you Baptist pastors would rally with me and see the truth of this because this is a God vision that in God's view we really are all created equal there is no male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. That's right there in the book. I thought you'd be behind me 100%, and instead, you have been absolutely silent. You have been complicit in your silence. Well, the first time I read this, it was probably among 10 other assignments that I had to do that week, and I wasn't a pastor yet. But I read it this week, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but I'm a pastor. <laughs> and I'm a Baptist pastor. And so it raised a lot of questions for me uh, and thoughts in me. And it, had, it, it caused me to go down and do my own journey. And I don't want to belabor this for too long to take too much time. But, you know, uh, I, I'm a third generation Baptist pastor. And while the churches that I grew up in, uh, I know that we were passionate about missions overseas. Uh, like, um, I remember a, a church in a suburban Kansas City I was a part of. Uh, we, we sent a, a group of people down to uh, El Salvador uh, where things had been wrecked by civil war and did humanitarian aid, built stuff, that kind of a thing. And I know that uh, we helped um, uh, families from uh, Laos uh, rebuild their lives in the Kansas City area. Uh, and they continue uh, to flourish. So I remember that, but I don't remember anything. I don't remember anything talked about civil rights. <clears throat> and we're an hour away from Topeka, Kansas, where Brown versus Board of Education happened. My dad was even a pastor in Topeka uh, 10 years after that decision. I, I even asked him, hey, what was it like being in that town? Was there still a lot of noise and tension? He says, no, I don't remember anything. Because it didn't affect white people all that much. And then when I uh, moved to Michigan, um, we, we chose to go to church. That my dad was no longer the, the pastor there. He was an executive minister. And we went to a downtown church in Lansing, Michigan. It was extremely urban uh, in an extremely diverse area. But most of the people in the church were white. And there again, now in Michigan, 45 minutes away from Detroit where there was a lot of racial tension in the 60s and beyond, uh, lots of auto worker kinds of things, lots of reasons to wonder about civil rights. 
And I don't really remember anything ever being talked about in terms of the civil rights movement or what we're doing today to push the ball forward. And that's troubling to me. Now, they chose to buy a house in a community called Okemos, which is a wealthy suburb of Lansing. It's where the business owners and Michigan State University professors uh, chose to raise their families. And they did it because they wanted me to have a great education, which I got in their high school. It was the best, one of the best in the state. And I'm grateful for that. But I'm also aware that growing up in the 1980s and the decade of greed and me made me absolutely blind and uncaring toward these issues. Now, as a kid who was raised Christian, I, I did not endorse inequality. I'm an American Baptist, and I, I remember being told, you know, from youth that MLK was one of ours, and so you know, I was all for it in theory, but never really on my radar. And it never really got onto my radar until I was in college, and the reason that happened was because we had a diverse student body, and I had guys on my floor who were black, and I'd see them at the gym, I'd sing with them in the college choir. One of them became a good friend of mine named Adolphus, who now is a pastor in Brooklyn, New York. And one of the most eye-opening experiences that I had in college, which changed me, changed my vision of things, helped me see reality in a ways that I could never appreciate otherwise, is our college was on tour. And I know I've told this story before. As I said in the early service, as I get older, I, it's okay for me to repeat myself. And I may completely forget that I've told this story. But this time, I know I've told this story. <laughs> and you get to hear it again. So uh, we're on choir tour. And we would do this on spring breaks, and every other year we'd go, we'd, we'd stay close to the Midwestern states, and then the other years we'd go to the coast. And it was a way to promote the school, give uh, the choir a cool spring break and all that. Well, this was one of those years we were in the Midwest, and so we were up at some American Baptist church in a small town in Iowa, and how we would handle housing after a concert is church members would take us in, uh, two or four or six students, depending on how much room they had in their house. And Adolphus uh, was my roommate. We were good friends, and we decided we're going to room together. And so we're in this small town in Iowa, and the concert's done. Everything went well, and it's time for us to get our assignment to who we're going to spend the night with. And uh, i got to tell you that um, as soon as Pete and Adolphus were called and the family members stood up, I got an eye to know who I was supposed to look at. And as soon as they caught an eye on Adolphus, their countenance changed. And there was a tension in the ride home that you could cut with a knife. And when we got to their house, uh, and we were taken down to their basement uh, where they had a spare room and space, uh, they were quick to point out to me the guest room with a queen bed. And they were quick to point out the pull-out couch to Adolphus. And again, the atmosphere was just off. <laughs> so uh, that pissed me off right then and there in the moment. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. These are Christian people, American Baptist people. What is happening here? How, how is this happening? If it was just a cold, hard, black and white transcript, you wouldn't know what was happening. But when you're in the room, you know something's happening. And so I remember saying, and I'm not patting myself on the back, I was just mad in the moment, but aware of the dynamic. And I said in front of them, hey man, you, you take the bedroom, I'll take the couch. Just to stick it to the host family a little bit. <laughs> and I'm glad I did, uh, but that was, man, just uh, to my chagrin and embarrassment, uh, man, I, I learned I had a long way to go. I did not know for so long. I thought since I was a nice person and a good Christian and tried to follow the ethic of Jesus and believed in civil rights, that that meant I was okay. And since I had a black friend, Adolphus, I couldn't be racist, couldn't have any racist ideas, couldn't even have prejudice because I had friends who were black now. And I found out that just because I have black friends uh, didn't really mean that my vision was changed. It helped. But it doesn't make it all go away. And I think sometimes people who look like me, we use that as our trump card to say, well, since I have a black friend, then I'm okay, and I can say what I want. 
but the fact is that I've been raised by a family who was loving and wonderful and Christian, but who never talked about these things, ever. And raised in churches that never talked about these things, ever. And I didn't know what I was dealing with, my discomfort. Throughout college, more and more discomfort, dealing with things, growing in awareness, and, and seminary amplified because it was incredibly diverse. And now my future colleagues, half of them are black in the classrooms that I attended uh, and had to think differently and work through uncomfort. But I got to tell you, it has been a process of my life because this is not something that we can watch one movie or read one book and then all of a sudden the white lens has been taken off. We cannot see it. We cannot see it until we are in positions that we have a mirror to our face to ask us penetrating questions. And when I read this letter from a Birmingham jail, it was, it was another opportunity for me to look in the mirror and ask, how have I been complicit with the systems that keep people less than? How have I been complicit in my apathy of not giving a rip or even upset when I see expressions of rioting or protests that I don't like, and so I dismiss the whole thing and distance myself from it because I say, well, they're wrong, so I don't have to worry about it anymore. Because I've done that, maybe I'm the only one. Or not wanting to admit that I still have room to grow. Who wants to say that? So it was penetrating for this week, and my goal here is not to make you feel guilty or mad or anything like that, and that is not Epperly's goal with this, and I don't believe that's the call of Jesus for us. I think it's good for us to be honest and to take stock and to wonder, where are we growing? Which led me to this, which is, kind of brings it back to Epperly's stuff, because he suggests that the ever-new God is ever calling us as individuals and as a collective to embrace shalom as our end and means. And so my questions for you, which are the questions for me, is where is the lack of shalom hitting your radar? And most of us immediately are going to go to our own personal private lives. And we're going to do a quick, quick assessment, an inventory. Well, this relationship's not that great. I don't feel great about this part of my life or this part of my body or this part of my diet or this part of the country or whatever. We go individual on that, and that's fine. But it cannot stay there. And this, I think, is... The, the thing that shifted Martin Luther King. He was taught by his father and grandfathers before him to not just look after his own well-being because he could have. In the black tradition, especially back then, but I believe so even now, black pastors command a different level of power and authority in the black community than white pastors do. They are looked at <laughs> with great authority. They have great influence. They are looked at as leaders in their community, whereas white pastors are a dime a dozen. It's like, Pete who? <laughs> Which is fine. But he could have enjoyed his own kingdom in Atlanta, Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia and not worried about anybody else. But it wasn't just his shalom. He couldn't look past what was happening with his neighbors. And my question for you is, what is the where is the lack of shalom hitting your neighbor? all people. What's happening in the world? What's happening here in Napa? That, that is an issue because we know we have issues in Napa and they come in different forms. And then finally, how are you hearing and heeding the call to Shalom? Well, last week I told you that I don't have any desire to just stir our anger. I think that's counterproductive. And so my silly question of the day uh, for you, what kind of scented candle are you on your best days and worst days? Really, I, I, we don't need any of your stinky candles. <laughs> we could just put those in a, we just throw them away. All right, we don't, we don't need the, the stinky, we don't need the, the, the spoiled egg uh, candle uh, that we all sometimes burn, right? Our, our country, our culture, we don't need any stinky candles like that anymore. But what we could use, we could use that ocean breeze. We could use that cinnamon spice. We could use that sea, sandalwood. Uh, we could use any host of other lovely fragrances in the world and just ask the question wherever we go, especially when we hear hot talk of why don't they just do it this way? I can't believe they did that. 
wouldn't it be wonderful instead of joining them in their outrage in the way that they're doing it if we would say gosh let me let you light my candle here <laughs> wouldn't it be wonderful if we could enter that that discussion and just say gosh I, I wonder what their experience is I wonder what their story is that would lead to this place I wonder why they thought this was uh, a good option to go with I, I'm curious about their experience what would happen if that was what we who most of us here today are white when it comes to racial stuff what would happen if that was our response hey let's figure this out this is really interesting let's go talk to some people let's go read some stuff to find out what we're missing here because this obviously doesn't make sense to a lot of people who look like us so let's find out from the people who are actually doing it maybe they have some insight that we could learn from that's a whole different kind of candle and maybe that if enough people do that maybe we are the fresh wind then and we are the agents of shalom which everybody ultimately thinks is lovely so may we be that fresh wind may we in the footsteps of Samuel and Francis and Claire and Bonaventure and Martin Luther King Jr may we be people who give a rip who are who are uh, fully uh, motivated and captured by the vision of God's shalom in the world to go do things in shalomy ways that shalom can happen. It doesn't mean not making noise. Sometimes it absolutely requires direct nonviolent action to create the crisis, to pay attention to the tension that has already been there. But can we do that? And do we care? To close our time together, have this prayer that I encourage you uh, to pray with me. And then I'll let you go because we're over time. Say it with me. Heart of the universe, thank you for the wonder of creation and the wonder of my own life. Help me to pay attention to the world in which I live. Help me to share the wonders of life in words of gratitude and acts of kindness. Help me to see beauty everywhere and be the embodiment of beauty, bringing beauty and healing to every situation. Let my heart beat with your heart, feeling your joy and pain, and companioning with you in healing the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. I hope you'll come back today at 4. It's going to be a good thing, and we'll see you then. Thanks for coming. Follow your heart like a stream to the ocean. Take up all of your devotion.